Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forevermore. So did you get that? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for our sins, notice the purpose clause, so that, for a purpose, for a reason, why did Christ give himself? For what reason did Christ give himself? So that he might rescue us from this present evil age in accordance with the will of God the Father. To him be glory forevermore. And so there is now this idea then, one one reason why God became man is to rescue us from this present evil age. And when I look at this, I see who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. There seems to be a connection or a link between our sins and this present evil age from which Christ rescues us. Somehow, it follows then that our sins have enslaved us to this present evil age. We should probably consider, then of course our next question is, what do we mean by this present evil age? Well, maybe some scripture will help us to grasp this idea. I think I put a couple up on there we go. Second Corinthians 4.4 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In this case the God of this world has blinded our, the minds of the unbelieving and so one area where we are enslaved is that we are blind in our minds and we are unable to see the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so we are This present evil age then would be one in which a person is blinded to the gospel and unable unless their eyes are opened. Another area we might see a clue as to what we mean by this present evil age is in Romans 12.2 where we read, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we see then that this world, this present world, this world system in which we live is somehow pressing, conforming us into its mold. And there is a distinction then between the mold in which the world seems desires to press us and the mind that is free in Christ. And so our sins have enslaved us to this present evil age. Ronald Fung, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, I think sums it up real nicely, and he describes this present evil age as the totality of human life dominated by sin and opposed to God. It is the totality of our human life that is dominated by sin and opposed to God. And Christ came to rescue us from this life dominated by sin and opposed to God. The next thing we should take note of is that Jesus came to rescue us from this present evil age. To rescue. To rescue would imply some sort of peril. In other words, nobody gets rescued from a pleasant situation. You can only be rescued from something that is detrimental or something that is hazardous or something that is um, 
Not good. Grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. And so somehow our sins have enslaved us and blinded us so that we cannot see and so that we are conformed to the mold of this world and we are dominated uh, by sin, our sinful nature and opposed to God. What that does then is it makes us enemies of God. One of the things then, one of the things that early on before I was a Christian, in fact, I, I got to a place where I completely rejected God in the seventh grade, and I won't go into all of the gory details here, but about seventh grade, I completely abandoned and rejected the idea that there was a God. But here's what I held to I held to this. If there was a God, I don't believe there is. But if there was, and he is who he says he is, I would want to be on his side. I'm a pragmatic person. If God created me, and he is all-powerful, and he can crush me like a bug, well then I'd rather be his friend than his enemy. (laughs) Does that make sense? I know, I was in seventh grade, I'm like, well that just makes sense to me. Still makes sense to me. If there is a God, and He is who He says He is, you want to be His friend, not His enemy. However, because of our sin, we are, by which we are dominated, everything we do is in opposition to God. We are His enemy. And Christ came to rescue us from that situation. That's the gospel. It's good news. So we might then ask ourselves, well then, how in the world did we become enslaved? Well, I'm glad you asked. Our circumstances began with the very first couple whom God created. Created both Adam and Eve and placed them in a perfect environment. When he created them, things were very good. And this first sinless couple were confronted with a question of God's goodness. Did God really say that? It wasn't just simply questioning whether or not his words were true, but whether or not God was good. Did God really say that, look at all these things, here's what God said. God says, see all of that stuff out there? Every tree of the garden, let's just say there's a thousand trees. 999 of them you can eat from. I'm going to prohibit you from eating from one of them. Fair enough? Yeah, that sounds really good. Here was the temptation. You see that one? God's holding out on you. That's the one you really want. And God's keeping you from enjoying fullness and joy and satisfaction. And he puts it right out there for you to look at. Every day you walk by it and he is holding out on you. And what ends up happening is not so much it... It wasn't so much the eating of the fruit, but the believing... Because by the time they ate the fruit, they believed that God was not good. Sin had already welled up in their hearts. And they already believed that God was not good. 
and God's best for them was called into question. You see, all sin reaches for things that have some intrinsic value, but which confront us with obedience or rebellion. Sin rarely tempts us with something that has no value or is not pleasurable. Sin reaches for things that have some intrinsic value. Advancement in a job certainly has some intrinsic value until it becomes all-consuming. And you abandon your family and you neglect your kids and you end up miserable and suicidal. Enjoying various material blessings have some intrinsic value. I've often said I have never, ever, ever been tempted with slamming my thumb with a hammer. It's just never tempted me. That's not pleasurable. It's not enjoyable. I would not enjoy it in one bit. The things that tempt me are those things that are pleasurable, that are enjoyable, things that, oh, look at that. Things that perhaps within godly boundaries are just that godly. And so Adam and Eve believed the lie that God was not looking out for their best. And they ate of the fruit and as representatives of the human race, as a representative of the human race, Adam's sin marred everybody. So Adam sinned, Adam fell, actually both Adam and Eve both sinned. And both of them fell, but it is through Adam that we have our guilt. And this we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, all sinned. And so Adam sinned, and as a result, all of us sinned. Adam stood as our federal head. And as a result, all of us in him sit, fell. And you're, now you're probably saying, well, that's just not fair. Why should I be held guilty for an act committed when I was not even born? That's a good question. I'll answer it with verse 18 of Romans 5. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification and life to all men. How is it fair that you are condemned by the act of one man? Then I would ask, how is it fair then that you are saved by the act of one man? Can you die for your own sins? Is that what you want? And so as representatives of the human race, Adam's sin marred all. And that set our world into a sinful condition. And sin continued to flourish as you read in the book of Genesis and through, 
through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and all the way through Joshua. Sin flourished. It flourished in, in Cain, and it flourished in Laban, and it flourished in, in Joseph and in Joseph's brothers, and it, it flourished in death through sin. In fact, we read the sad commentary, and, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and they died. And so and so begot so and so and they died. And so and so begot so and so and they died. And they died and they died and they died and they died. And then from the book of Judges until the kings, we see the people of God, Israel, forsaking the Lord. They forsake the Lord by worshiping the gods of the nations that are around them, and they participate in the most unnatural and the most heinous acts that you can imagine. Some of the people abandon the Lord completely, and they just said, I'm just going full bore out to some pagan pagan god. I'm not even going to make pretense that I'm following Yahweh anymore. I'm just going after pagan gods. But mostly what people did was they integrated pagan religion into the pure worship of Yahweh. And into this death cycle, God sent his prophets who began to call people back saying, you have abandoned the Lord, you have compromised true worship to the Lord, you have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And, they, and he sent his prophets one after another, one after another. Some received an audience, but most were cast out and, and mocked and considered fools and perhaps even put to death for their desire to call people back to the Lord. We open the New Testament with Jesus continuing this prophetical work. Only what he does, he picks up with what the prophets have said, but he speaks more clearly to the concept of sin being not just external acts, but they being internal acts. They be a sin is a condition of the heart, not just what we do, but it is who we are. And Jesus famously said that if you are angry with your brother, you have murdered him in your heart. And Jesus said, you shall not commit adultery, to which probably all of the Pharisees and religious leaders and perhaps even the people surrounding him said, oh, that's good. <laughs> good on that one. Haven't done it. But if you've lusted in your heart, you have committed adultery. Oh, well, that's a little different. And Jesus then keeps going on, begins to deal with this very issue, telling us that bad trees bear bad fruit, and our hearts are evil, and they need to be redeemed. And so Christ came to forgive and to remove sins. In fact, in Matthew one twenty one, the angel spoke to Joseph, saying, And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From there, the Apostle Paul picks up and highlights that God has wrath towards human sin and that unbelief is at its root and that everybody has sinned. There is no one on this earth who has not sinned. James reinforces the idea that sin is a heart condition. And then in Revelation, we see the devilish power behind the rebellion, behind rebellion. We see him as the dragon, that serpent of old who persecutes the people of God, 
All of this leads into the day where God will ultimately condemn sin and create a new heaven and a new earth. And so the question here then is, for what reason did God become man? God became man. One reason anyways is to rescue us from this present evil age, an age that is dominated by sin and rebellion to God. How did we get here? I just gave you a brief history of how we got here. Well then, if I'm enslaved, how about if I just free myself? Is that an option? The answer is no, you cannot free yourself. Slaves don't free other slaves. They don't have the means, they don't have the ability. We should note then in the book of Galatians, or in the book of Galatians that this rescue operation for which God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ. This rescue operation is an act of grace. And we see this in chapter 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. God called you by grace. This is the effectual grace. It is That is grace that actually has an effect. It actually brings redemption. It brings salvation. I'm quick. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. Remember way back we called that Paul was gobsmacked. I don't know if you remember that phrase. Um, Basically hand over the mouth like, oh my God. I'm amazed. God has called you by grace. It is by grace that you've been called. And then Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. Let me read these passages. It goes like this. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, so then does he who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. And so... Our rest, this rescue operation is an act of grace. It is by grace through faith that God, His unmerited favor towards us, has purchased our salvation. And it is imperative then. It is the only way to receive that salvation is to believe that God has done what God has done. You see, when a person places his trust in Christ for rescue, that individual then is made right with God. We call this justification. That is right standing with God. How do you stand in a right position before God? How do you stand before a holy God, uncondemned and unmarred by sin? How do you do that? Can you on your own stand before a holy God? And the answer is no. The only way to stand justified, declared righteous or right before God is by believing that God sent his son to rescue you from the present evil age. And he bore 
the wrath of your sin in his own body when he suffered on Calvary. This was the rescue operation. We should note also that this rescue operation was not a plan B. It's not as though Adam sinned and then God said, oh no, now what do I do? I need to come up with something quick. This is a bad situation. I wonder what it is I can do. No. God is never caught off guard. God is never surprised and God has no plan B. He only has one plan, plan A, and it always works. When it always works, you don't need a plan B. And so we see that the rescue operation was in the mind of God from the very beginning. In fact, way back in Genesis 3.15, we see, the res- rescue, we see a hint at the rescue operation being put into place. And all the way through scriptures, we begin to see how... Moses talked, there's going to be another one coming, another prophet just like me. And when he comes, you need to listen to him. And we see in the Psalms how David talks about one who would come. And Isaiah talks about one who would come. And Jeremiah talks about one who would come. And all of the prophets and all of the the Old Testament authors wrote about a Messiah who would come and finally redeem us. Jeremiah said he will come and he'll make a new covenant, one that's written on your hearts, not written on tablets of stone. And people are wondering when is that day going to come. And then in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we see, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law. This rescue operation was ever and eternally in the mind of God, but it was realized in the fullness of time. And in the fullness of time, Christ Redeemed us. Now here's the interesting thing about what Christ did in the fullness of time. Let's look at this text. In verse 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because... You are sons. God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I want you to understand. I know I've repeated this a lot when I read through this text. But you need to understand what this rescue operation entailed. It just did not, it did not entail just opening the prison doors and setting you free. That would be great. If Christ came, died for your sins, and set you free from this present evil age, that would be really good. You are no longer held accountable for your sins. Your sins have been borne by Christ on the cross. Yahoo, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But we serve a God who is above and beyond all comprehension. He says this, not only then are you a free slave, but I am, and not only, not only are you a free slave, but how about this, how about I adopt you into my family? I'm going to make you a son and a daughter of my, of my kingdom. You're not just simply a freed slave. You're not just simply a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You are my son and my daughter. How does that work? So that sounds really good. I can't get better than that. Oh, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can get better than that. Really? Yeah, you're not just a free slave. You're not just a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are not just a son and a daughter of the Most High God. You are an heir. 
an inheritor of all of the promises and all of the blessings and all of the resources that heaven has at its disposal which is substantial and so this rescue operation came about why did God become a man so that he might rescue us from this present evil age not just to set us free but to make us children of the most high God to make us inheritors of all of the promises uh, of the resources available to God almighty that's your step that's the rescue operation why did God become man well there's one reason well then we would ask this question well that sounds really good what do I need to do to get that I'm glad you asked again I would point you to the rich young ruler as an example of what we must do to receive this because the rich young ruler came and asked the very same question of Jesus came to Jesus and said good master what good thing must I do to inherit the kingdom of God and I love what Jesus said he says obey the commandments and this young buck says great done it I'm in and then I love what Jesus says after that. He didn't say, well, good, I'm glad you're in. Jesus didn't even bestow grace. Do you see what Jesus did? He piled on the law. That's an amazing response. He gave him more law. He gave him more requirements. And that baffled me for such a long time. Why would Jesus not then extend the mercy and grace that we would expect him to extend? Instead, he piles on law. Well then, Mr. Rich Young Ruler, since you've kept all the commandments, here's what I want you to do. One more thing, one more law, one more requirement. I want you to sell everything you have and come and follow. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. And at that the man turned his back upon Christ and said, that's just too much. Do you see why Christ gave him the law? And kept piling on law. Because that's exactly what the law was supposed to do. was to bring us to an end of ourselves where we say, I cannot keep it. That's something I cannot do. Have mercy upon me, O Son of God. So what must I, what good thing must I do? Well, the good thing you must do is keep the law perfectly. And since I know nobody in here has done that, you've already messed up. So, somewhere along the way, you've already messed up. So that option is not even available to you. Well, then it seems impossible. Which is exactly what the disciples asked Jesus. said, if this rich guy, who obviously because he's rich has favor with God, and is... Um, got God's ear and is close with God, evidenced by his wealth, if he can't be saved, then who can be saved? To which Jesus Christ answers beautifully, with God, or with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Please don't use that text out of its context. When he says all things are possible, he's not saying all things are like, a, I could be an NHL player, right? All right, that's just not possible. I mean, what to even in my younger days to have been a professional hockey player I was never good enough or even close to good enough or even close to being close to good enough I could go on it does not mean that what it means is that it is impossible to save yourself by anything that you can do there is no amount of law keeping because eventually you're going to hit a law that you cannot keep 
at which point your only viable response is to turn away like the rich young ruler or turn towards the Messiah and say, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's what Jesus was doing. He was driving this man to his feet. Fall down and bow before me and confess your sins and you will be saved. What good thing must I do to be saved? Well, I want you to know, with mankind it is impossible, but with God salvation is entirely possible. And the work that Christ has done on the cross is sufficient to accomplish what you could not accomplish on your own. You see, if we could save ourselves, then the work of the cross is superfluous. We, we don't need it. It's extra. It's nice. But hey, thanks for doing that, Jesus, but I kind of got this one on my own. Thanks for the agony. Thanks for the suffering. Thanks for the bloodshed. Thanks for all of that. Good to you. Like it. There might be somebody out there who needs it, but not me. I'm pretty good. I got it. If we could save ourselves, his work would be unnecessary. But in 3, 26 through 29, we read, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For you, for all of you, were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to the promise. You are heirs because of the promise that God has made to save you through the means of Jesus Christ. Well, now, what do we do? What's the next step? Well, the next step is join the battle. Get back in. You were a POW. Now, get, now you've been rescued. Get back in the battle. Paul calls this life, this Christian life, a warfare. He says we wage war against the flesh. The flesh and the spirit wage war against one another. But he also says that we are victorious and have the ability but to be victorious by living, by walking, by being led by the spirit, by empowered by the spirit of God. Sin is bondage. Do not be taken captive. And so the first one is get in battle. Walk and live. Be led. Keep in step with the Spirit who now dwells within you as a believer. Do you understand that? That when you became a child of God, an heir of the promises, one of the things you received was not just... You did not just gain a cheering section in heaven saying, I hope, I'm, I'm rooting for you, I'm rooting for you. No, he gave the Spirit which actually empowers us to live out so that Christ might actually live his life through us to the glory of God. That's who is in you. The very Spirit of the living God to live out the Christ-like life so that Christ lives his life through you. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want you to understand that. The life that I now live, I live by the power of the Son of God. But it's not just personal warfare. There's corporate warfare that is going on. And we are to lead other, others to freedom. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking out to yourself so you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. And so we not only engage in battle personally, but also we help set others free. And then finally we are told, do not grow weary. It's easy to grow weary in this battle. 
it's easy to wonder whether or not anything we do is making any difference whatsoever. But Paul uses the wonderful example of a farmer who waits patiently for a crop. And if you sow, you will reap. And so, that is a brief summary of the book of Galatians. So what does any of this have to do with Advent? Let me describe briefly the idea of Advent. Advent just simply means coming. It has to do with the coming, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think we would be better off as Christians to begin thinking not so much more on the lines of Christmas, but maybe along the lines of Advent or perhaps along the lines of Incarnation. It is a looking forward as well as a looking back. It is a looking forward to the day where we celebrate that God put on flesh and dwelt among us. It is also remembering that we once were in bondage, but Christ who put on flesh and dwelt among us came to rescue us from this present evil age, and he did so by the will of God to the glory of the Father. So during this time of Advent, and Advent begins today, and it will continue on really until Christmas, and then there will be some other but pretty much culminates on Christmas Day. During this time, um, we, I would like us to think about remembering that we give glory to God the Father for taking the, initi- the initiative and rescuing us from our sin by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ who was born of Mary. That is, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. And he sent forth his spirit into to us, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, and if we are children, then we are also heirs. Advent is a grace-filled event. And as we are so inundated with hedonistic, hedonistic images and pleas to fulfill all of your desires and all of your wants and you can get this and you can get that, Advent reminds us to step back and remember grace. You see, Paul's detractors in the book of Galatians tried to distract from grace. They just tried to divert people from the truth of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And so the powers of this world seek to distract us during this time to um, keep us from thinking about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's easy. Everywhere we go, everything on the radio, everywhere we go, everything we do is going to be calling us to divert our attention away from the beauty of grace. And so we celebrate Advent to remember why we even have this season. The next thing we need to do is we need to respond to grace. That is, we need to demonstrate to the world that our lives are shaped by something more than this hedonistic pursuit of more. Which is one of the reasons why we have this Lottie Moon Christmas offering. 
IMB is just the International Mission Board. 100% of your offerings, whatever you contribute, this is above and beyond your tithes and offerings, go to missionaries. Actually support the work of missionaries. Not one dime will go to administrative costs. Not a dime. That's already been, been taken care of. Our church has always been in the top 10% nationwide per capita of giving. I would like to see that continue. That basically works out to about 50 bucks a person. So what that means is maybe you don't buy that extra toy or that extra thing and you give that for the sake of the gospel. Or you just say, you know what, we're going to simplify this year so that the gospel goes forth. And so I don't need to be caught up in all of these. I'm not saying deny your kids or your grandkids and make sure, you know, I'm not saying make sure that they cry and are miserable on Christmas Day. Please don't think it's an either or situation. I'm saying maybe simplify and make sure that eternal things are taken care of. Which is also why there's a, a um, food drive going on. There'll be another one in February. How many ate enough at Thanksgiving? Yeah, we all have plenty of food. We need to, we need to make sure that we're taking... This is Advent. This is remembering grace. This is countering that hedonistic pursuit of more by giving more. And so we demonstrate to the world that our lives are shaped not by the new hottest thing, but by something more. That is, our lives are molded and formed by Christ. And it gives us an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus Christ in great and powerful ways. Think about how many people are alienated during this time of year. They're looking for meaning, they're looking for love, they're looking for hope. And the incarnation is the right answer to that loneliness, to that separation, to that disconnect. You think about Mary in her um, response to grace. God says, you're going to bear a child. He's He's going to be the Messiah. And how does she respond? With words of thankfulness and praise, saying, God has had mercy upon me. We should respond to the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Advent is about others. Advent is about the least. The Advent is about the lost among whom Jesus was born. Jesus came to a lost, sinful, dying, poor world. That's where he came into. Advent allows us to see our connection to this hurting world and to know that God is at work in Jesus to heal the hurt. And so, a couple of things that I'd like to do during Advent, we're going to... um, Just a quick resource, and I know I've I've recommended this resource periodically, um, but John Piper has a great free resource, Advent resource. It's a daily scripture reading with a little devotional. You might want to do that. You can get it free online. If you just go to... um, I think I wrote it down here... Good News of Great Joy, called Good News of Great Joy, or if you just go to John Piper Advent, it's a free download, it'll go into your Kindle, or you can just download it onto your computer, or you can print it out, or you can do whatever you want, but if you've got a Kindle, just push the button, it'll go into your Kindle, and you'll have it every single day on your phone or on whatever device you need it on. If you're old school, you can print it, and after you've killed all those trees, you can read it every single day. But no guilt. You also might even consider, I know this is uh, this just seems so 
born to evangelicals. You might even go online, because I know you probably don't have, well, a few of you may, but most of you don't have one of these in real life, and that is just um, go online and look up a lectionary. All right? And uh, lectionary just is the church calendar, and it just has scripture readings for every day of the year. And during Advent, there will be scripture readings for every day of the year. In fact, two of the two scriptures we read today came out of the lectionary. And in fact, my sermon series for the next four weeks will come out of the lectionary. We're in year C, just so you know. But that's a great way. Read those scriptures every single day. There'll be, a script, there'll be four scriptures, I think four, maybe even more, um, every single day. And you can read them. And... Uh, just it's going to point you towards the coming, the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So 